Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. Today, we're joined by Dr. Danielle Narika. She's a palliative care physician and director of the hospice and palliative care program here at VCU. She's the winner of this year's Leadership and Graduate Medical Education Award for fellowship directors and has published articles and book chapters on the topics of palliative care, quality of life, and symptom management. Welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Can you start by giving us a brief introduction into palliative and hospice care? What about these two fields of medicine makes them unique with respect to medical ethics? That's a great question. I think we are a field where there are, there are many challenges at times that, that come up um, and some of them lead to, um, lead to consulting us and also our ethics team. So I think one of the things that I've gotten very used to is, is which one of us gets there first in any particular uh, instance. Because the, the challenges that come when folks are nearing end of life can be many, they can be broad, but they all tend to add together. And sometimes it is a little bit overwhelming for patients, families, and teams to figure out what the right path is. Um, so I think starting off with some definitions is usually important. Um, there's often a lot of confusion about what palliative actually is and what the difference between palliative and hospice is. Um, if you think about hospice mostly as a construct by Medicare to sort of create an insurance um, insurance support for end of life care, usually outside of a hospital setting, that was really what hospice was designed to do. So these are care plans that are meant to be more sort of, you've heard the term comfort based or based on quality of life, a little less on life prolonging measures, and usually in patients with a prognosis of six months or less. And one of the things that I will tell you that the field that I work in, palliative care grew out of is sort of the recognition that a lot of patients and families found that to be a rather confining construct. Um, the medical illnesses we treat, the way we treat them often lead us to care plans that are somewhat outside of how hospice was developed. And that seems to lead to a lot of angst between patients and families and care teams um, and some of that really actually has nothing to do, you know, sometimes it's labeled as an ethical issue and it's really sort of a systems issue or uh, challenges in kind of understanding how to make the, the system work for that particular patient and family. And because we know that hospice is a little bit of a constrained um, resource system, this, uh, this idea of palliative care, which is it doesn't matter where you are in your disease course, you could be at diagnosis. Um, but if you have a life-limiting illness or multiple of them, and you're, you know, you're going to need support, your family's going to need support, there's going to be transitions of care over time, there's going to be management of symptoms, well, that's what we were designed to sort of do without the construct of whatever your code status might be, what kind of treatments you want, and that sort of thing. And we're really meant to be sort of a concurrent care model to, to allow patients and families not to have to worry about the other pieces of whether or not this fix, fits in this box we've developed, um, but more so what they, what they believe the goals of care are at any given time in their illness. And that that's sort of the challenge of what I do in brief is that, uh, you know, it's complicated a lot of times to figure out what, what the answers are. And one of the other pieces I'll highlight about that is that, you know, we, we treat a family unit often. We don't 
we don't treat a patient on their own. Um, and a lot of the calls I get about ethical challenges are actually challenges that relate to treating a patient who is accompanied by, and when I use the term family, it's, it's whoever that patient determines is their family. I, you know, I think there's a lot of societal and legal constructs for that that are meaningless to me. You tell me who your family is and that's who, you know, is part of your care plan. Um, but humans are complicated and sometimes it gets messy. Um, so I think one of our jobs is to figure out who those people are that are important to the patient that we're taking care of and how to integrate them into the care plan, especially when there's conflicting views of what that should look like. Can you describe what's going through your mind when making these difficult palliative care decisions? For example, would a surgery done with palliative intent, focused on symptom relief, be done in frailer patients or under more risky circumstances compared to other surgeries? Do palliative care doctors operate under a different set of principles as compared to other specialties? Are there in general more risks accepted for comfort measures? So I think one of the things I would say at baseline is, is our goal really, and often um, others will sort of use the term palliative to mean the absence of other therapy or we're not sort of treating an active underlying condition anymore. Um, Really what we're meant to do as a special as a specialty is to sort of evaluate where the patient is in their course at any given time, what we have to offer, what the benefits and burdens of all of those offerings are, and how well they match to what the patient's goals are. And that's very time consuming work, right? It takes a long time to sort of sit and look through the list of these are the different interventions that we can do and which ones of them make sense and which ones of them don't. Um, one of the things I think that's a challenge for my colleagues and sometimes why they call, especially for ethical dilemmas, is there may be sort of yes, no answers to some of these questions, but often there's sort of a, an area in that gray in between, and that's harder to figure out. Um, I've certainly cared for patients who were sort of very sure that they didn't want to be resuscitated and also very sure that they were not ready for hospice and kind of wanted to sort of talk about interventions in between, right? Um, maybe that peg tube was a consideration for them. They did want to hear more about that. They were not going to hear about dialysis and all of those sort of questions in between. And I think those conversations are sometimes difficult for my colleagues and other specialties to have because there's so much sort of weighing and thinking and, and not direct answers, right? This is not necessarily all based on what the literature says because the literature can't answer some of these things for each individual patient who has their own values, goals, and beliefs. Um, so part of my job is to sort of figure out who that person is and what's important to them. And based upon what interventions might be necessary, what seems to make sense of how to talk them through a care plan. Uh, because it's not, obviously we're not being paternalistic, but we're not also allowing the patient to sort of make all these decisions independently because that's overwhelming and they don't, they don't have the background to do that. So there's this sort of um, balance that you try to make where you provide enough information that they can kind of see what the paths are and the support for them to sort of determine what makes sense. Um, but you know, in regards to the question of for any particular circumstance, how do we determine, you know, if, it, if it's a high risk surgery, if it's um, questions about nutrition, if it's questions about resuscitation, or are we going to go on the vent again when we've been on the vent before for COPD or any of those things, 
The challenge is, is it's different for every individual. And that's why I think some people sort of are, are not as, um, are not as comfortable when they work in other specialties, uh, taking care of patients in this space, because there aren't, um, there aren't always specific quote unquote right answers. That's a little more comfortable sometimes when, you know, you have cardiomyopathy, these are the medications we give for it. Ta-da, that's what we do. Uh, not to make cardiology simplistic, it is not, <laughs> um, it's just different, right? Um, but there, there aren't, there aren't direct answers on this. And I think the other thing that drives people nuts about what I do is that we might come up with a care plan and then two days later, we might change it. Now that's okay by me because that's how humans work. Sometimes they need time to process. Sometimes they need time to talk to their families about things. Sometimes their first answer to me is, heck no, you're wrong. And then over time, they have a different impression. Sometimes it's, we just have to wait and see. So I'll take care of patients who say, you know what, for right now, I do want to be resuscitated. I do want to go to the ICU. I, I do want to try these things. And a week later, a few more complications have happened. And they said, okay, I don't want to go to the ICU anymore. I don't want to be on the ventilator anymore. I'm okay with doing IV antibiotics and blood transfusions and those sort of things. Can I come to your unit and do those things, but not go to the ICU? Sure, we can do that. Um, so it is, it's a lot of, it's a lot of talking, it's a lot of thinking through things, and it's sort of the flexibility to be willing to change parts of that plan at, at any time. And that's also true if you send a patient home with hospice. So something that is very distressing to my colleagues is that at times you'll send a patient home with hospice and maybe they'll come back and <laughs> before we even figure out why they're back, everybody's like, oh my gosh, they don't want hospice anymore. Oh no, the family fell apart at home and now they need our help. Okay, so we'll take care of that. But sometimes it's, they did better than we thought we would. Okay, so take them out of hospice. There's not the end of the world. None of these things are. As long as we're listening to patients and sort of seeing where we are at any given time, we can change the care plan conceivably whenever we want. But you have to have that mindset um, and you also have to be, you also have to be prepared that people struggle with these things. Sometimes the patient is absolutely sure what they want. You know what the care they want is they define a care plan and their family is really struggling with it. And every day that I come in, patient's fine. Family wants to know for the fourth day in a row, why we're not feeding them. We just do it again. It's okay. That's how humans work. That's how they process things. So there's a lot that goes into sort of how do you make those care plans um, that is very based on the individual? At times you'll see patients we take care of who have very straightforward care plans because they're actively dying and they're completely comfort care and we're not, we're not treating any underlying condition and we're solely using medications for symptom management and their family is completely at peace with everything, but that's not all of what I do. It seems that a lot of the decisions you make are quite individual, and as you mentioned, there is not a lot of literature or data to guide that decision-making process. Do you feel that palliative care physicians are more ethically and morally burdened with the decisions they have to make, as they so frequently have to rely on using their own compass and reasoning? That's a really great question. And my guess would be is that we're on average not, and I will answer for myself that I am not, but that's probably why I went into palliative, right? Because, because this is comfortable for me to do. I will tell you that, you know, for some of my colleagues, they're not very comfortable with this. They are more comfortable with those, those other pieces. And thankfully we have everyone on this planet to do, because I shouldn't have sharp objects that I know about myself, right? Don't <laughs> give me sharp objects. Nothing good is coming. Um, so we need everyone's talents and, and sort of 
sitting in the gray with patients and families is something that I'm comfortable with because it's important, right? That's where a lot of the answers we sort of seek to provide care for patients and families are. Um, so I think, and it's interesting when I talk to my colleagues, sometimes we'll do a family meeting and we'll spend an hour with a, a patient in the family and they'll want to continue the current care plan. They'll want to be full code still and what have you. And we'll leave and the, <laughs> the team is like, I'm sorry, Dr. Enrica, that they want to be full code. <laughs> I, great, muscle top. Like, I have no problem with that. I have no problem with resuscitation. The critical care specialists here do wonderful work. All of those things are amazing. Uh, the only problem I have is when we don't talk to patients and families about these things and then they don't actually get to make those decisions. That's a barrier for me. That sort of thing actually is a bit distressing to me because if we don't give you the information and support, you can't actually make an informed decision. But if we've sat with you and we've given you information and, and we've given you the support to think through things and that's what you want to do with your care plan and you know that we're more than happy to sit down at any time again and discuss it again, I have no problems at all with that. That's how this is supposed to work. You, I'm, you know, one of the things you have to get comfortable with is sometimes I walk into a situation and I'm like, mm, that's not what I would do, but it's not about me, right? It's about the patient and the family. Um, and you know, there's obviously boundaries to everything, right? So there's a policy here for medically unnecessary care um, and that's a whole different pathway. So sometimes we all sort of decide, even if you want this, we feel like we're causing harm and we're not helping and that that's sort of ethically and legally an issue. But short of that, if the patient and family sort of have been given all of the information and given support, then that's their care plan. And I'm here to support that too. Um, some folks think, well, okay, you're going to disappear now because the patient wants to be full pose. <laughs> okay, but no, I'm here to support them and we can still talk about things. And they may be full code now and maybe in a week or three months or six months or a year, they won't be. That's okay too. Whatever it is they need, that's what we're here for. I think it's really great that you have this kind of flexibility and that's really important because people do change their minds about what they're feeling. Do you see an ethical or moral difference between you know, withdrawing care at the end of life and withholding care for comfort measures? Because one actively involves removing care that was started and while the other is simply to just not start an invasive measure. So how do you kind of balance that? Does that take a moral toll on you as well as the physician who has to be the one to physically remove that care? or do you see them as different? Um, that's a great question. So I will tell you, me personally, I do not. Um, again, I have a comfort level with, with those things, and I think that's why it makes it easier for me to practice in the specialty. But I do want to highlight, because that's a great question, that it is ethically and legally, the things that you mentioned are exactly the same. Withdrawal of life-prolonging measures is exactly the same as not starting them. There have been a number of studies on families in the ICU that show that um, that PTSD rates are actually fairly high for family members who have had to withdraw life-prolonging therapies on a close family member. So I think we do need to remember that ethics and, and legal you know, definitions are important, but the families that we take care of view this much differently than when they have to do these things. Um, even when you try to sit with families and explain it's this underlying disease that has created this. It's, it's not the fact that we're taking them off this machine. The fact that we're taking them off this machine is actually just our recognition that it's not helping the way we wanted it to. Families, that's not, that's a, that's a book answer. It's not an emotional answer. And a lot of families really struggle with the fact that they believe, they feel that 
their action and discontinuing that life prolonging measure led directly to their loved one's death. And that's tough. That is tough. And I think when we talk about doing advanced care planning, to your point, one of the things that I try to drive home, and I'll have patients sometimes who will say, well, you know what, I want to try being in the ICU, and they have, you know, four different life <laughs> limiting issues. I want to try being in the ICU, but my family can just take me off the machines. And that's a time for me to pause with that patient and say, let's think through this a little bit. Let's think through what that will actually look like for your family, because I'm afraid that that's actually going to be a big burden on them, even if they know that you don't want to be on these long term. And we might decide to, to do this differently as we talk about it over time. And a lot of times those patients, when they've thought about it, actually have different ideas on what they want to do. Um, because it doesn't occur to you unless you've been in that situation, how hard it is to tell a doctor, okay, stop the dialysis, stop the pressors, take the tube out. And then their loved one dies fairly shortly after that, right? On that point, I was wondering, how do you measure a successful patient outcome, so to speak, in palliative care? Um, in other disciplines, they might measure something by mortality or by regression of disease. Is that something in terms of measuring a successful outcome? Does that vary person to person? Or is there some kind of objective measure that you might use to evaluate that? That's a really great question, um, because it points to one of the challenges in our field, which is outcomes. Um, and that's what makes doing studies in our field difficult. So our program chair has a number of um, NIH studies that he does, and they're all, they're all a little bit challenging to do because the outcome measures are different than they are in a cardiology study or you know, a study in patients with cirrhosis or those sort of things where there's lab markers, radiologic studies, you know, those kind of objective outcomes. Um, there are a number of things that we do try to sort of measure, and some of them are, um, for instance, if you're doing advanced care planning, you can measure conversations and document completion rates. If you're working with patient populations with life-limiting illness, you can certainly measure, and we do, and we encourage symptom burden. Um, that actually produces a lot of fascinating research, and the most of it is oncology right now. So despite the fact that we throw oncology under the bus a lot, they actually have much more evidence than any other specialty does in patients with life-limiting illness. Um, but in Canada, it's their standard to measure symptoms on sort of a 1 to 10 scale. Okay, so not completely objective, right? There's some still some subjectivity to that, but, you know, the patient is putting it somewhere so we get an idea, not just pain, but nausea, anxiety, depression, all sorts of symptoms. Um, and it's sort of remarkable because when you do that on a regular basis, it turns out, and we know this, right? Obviously it's sort of a no brainer, it proves quality of care, but it actually also improves outcomes. ED utilization drops, inpatient hospitalization drops, there's more advanced care planning, there's more hospice use, right? So if we pay attention to those things and we don't always have time, so part of my job is to sort of for those subspecialists who don't have the time to sort of sit with patients and spend the extra half an hour asking about their pain and their nausea and their depression and all of these other things, and then making a plan for those. When you do that, it turns out patients and families have better quality of life and the system has better outcomes. So we measure things like that. Um, we do actually, it gets tricky, right? At a system level, so for instance, our hospital measures inpatient mortality and hospice utilization rates, and those are things, obviously, those are projects that I participate in from palliative. Um, so those are sort of the um, numbers, metrics type of outcomes. 
but then there's, you know, if you're in an ethical spectrum, a lot of what we do is sort of support roles. This is the stuff that's harder to measure, but is invaluable to the practice that we do. And that's not only supportive patients and families through challenging circumstances and how do we make a care plan when, you know, the first family meeting involves chairs getting thrown things, but also how how do we help support teams who are sort of distressed by what's happening, right? Because sometimes they are. Sometimes I get consulted because the team is sort of, <laughs> I don't know what to do. I can't talk to the family. <laughs> what are we supposed to do with this? Okay. So I'm here not only to help the patient and family, but also sort of provide support to the team who isn't quite sure what the next steps are, is a little bit conflicted about how to create a care plan with the different things that are going on and how to address all of those pieces. And, um, and you know, additionally, is sort of taxed for time and can't spend the hour, hour and a half multiple times sometimes that it actually takes to create a care plan when you're trying to be mindful of all these pieces. Given the positive outcomes that you've just mentioned with palliative care, do you think that palliative care should be offered to all patients with life-limiting illnesses that come to the hospital early on? Um, of course I do. I know. The, so that's always the classic question, right? Is how, how and when do we decide to involve palliative care? And I will tell you, there is a, there's a lot of levels to how you answer that question. And part of it is a system level. So here at this particular health system, our palliative program was developed first inpatient. And we have a unit, which is, which is a rarer tool. Many institutions don't have a palliative care unit. But we don't have as robust outpatient services, and that's actually where you want palliative care to be. Um, when patients are inpatient, there tends to be some sort of crisis going on. And you know what I sort of tell folks is, if the rapid response team is right behind me, the conversations that we have are not going to be the ideal ones, right? It's they're going to be rushed, and the patients and family are going to feel pressured, and that is not the way you want to have these conversations. You want them to occur over time with support and with some control over it by the patient and family, right? Because the first time you try to have a conversation like this, the patient is going to tell you to take a hike, right? Nobody wants to think about their own mortality. You have to present it over time, and you have to give the patient and family control over it. Okay, not today, but when and with who? And you know, how can we provide support for you to have a conversation like this? And what kind of information do you need from me to be able to think through these things? And then eventually there will always be folks who are absolutely just never going to think about it. That and you know, we have a care plan for them. Like they'll they'll go to the Mercury, they'll get surgery, whatever. That's okay. Uh, they've been offered the opportunity, they decline. It's okay. But for a lot of patients and families, somewhere along that time course, if you do this as an outpatient and you give it a good amount of time, they will engage in conversations, especially as they see things change. And then you can make a care plan that is more proactive. When you have, when you have mostly inpatient-based palliative services, what you get is very late stage consultation because the patient has to be admitted in order to see us, right? If you have a robust outpatient service, then you can actually affect outcomes much earlier on. So you see in our population, because we do have a clinic in oncology, those outcomes we are actually able to affect uh, much more so than any other patient population here because we can see them earlier, earlier on and upstream. It's every health system has a different approach to how and when you introduce palliative and some of it is the size of the team and some of it is 
what particular subspecialists are comfortable with it and which ones are not. Some of it is what outcomes the hospital is trying to reach and which of those are integrated with palliative. Um, some of it depends on ethics presence, honestly. If you have a strong ethics presence, you might have a little less palliative consultation or vice versa because there tends to be a lot of overlap in the consultations that we do. Um, one area that will be growing over time, um, and it'll be interesting to see how it integrates into what we do, is the concept of predictive analytics and the fact that EMRs and other sophisticated databases can pull together quite literally millions of variables in some patients to figure out when the patient might be at risk of having kind of a, you know, less than six to 12 month prognosis. One of the challenges in my field is either the practitioner feels like they're unsure of the prognosis or they're just plain wrong. And trust me, I get it. I'm wrong too. I tell families just about every day, I don't like how this looks, but I'm wrong all the time and people prove me wrong and that's okay. I'm just telling you, I feel like, you know, time might be on a, a somewhat shorter scale. Um, but I think when you do studies, you see how, how wrong we often are as practitioners. And that leads to a lot of, we miss the window to have conversations type of thing. If, if, if your practitioner feels like your prognosis is two or three years and it's actually three months, we've now missed the chance to do something different with your care. And I think over time, um, and certainly I think, you know, um, talking to the folks with Epic, it sounds like they're trying to include, they're trying to develop this sort of uh, capability for Epic and various health systems are, are working on models that they can use for, for sort of predicting these things. And then using that as a prompt for providers, hey, this might be a good time to introduce the concept of talking to palliative, um, or there's no advanced care plan. There's nothing. We don't even know who the decision maker is for this patient. If they wind up without capacity, let's start thinking about these things. Cause you know, we see that this patient might be at risk for having less of a prognosis. So speaking of the foundations of palliative and hospice care, I wanted to discuss the distinction between comfort measure and life-saving measure. Are there specific definitions for the two? And if so, who sets them? Take IV fluids, for example. Are they a comfort measure to prevent symptoms of dehydration or a life-saving and prolonging measure? Are these topics research and data-driven or are palliative and hospice care doctors again left to make unique calls in each patient's case? So that's a great question. Um, and you know, again, everybody would love it if there's direct answers. What I will tell you is some interventions are clearly one or the other, and then there's there's the ones in the middle. Um, so for instance, cardiac resuscitation, that's a, you can call it life prolonging. You know, I usually talk to patients about it more of like, we can bring you back to life, which is actually more of what we're doing. Um, but I think we get the idea that if you're in an ICU, most of those interventions are life prolonging. Not many of them are for, quality of life basis. Um, obviously, when we talk about things like pain medicines and nausea medicines, everybody gets the idea that those are comfort-driven interventions. Um, but sort of in the middle are things that, and again, this is, it's interesting when you look at our code status orders that we used to have before we sort of changed them to align with that um, Virginia Physician Order for Scope of Treatment form, it was very much sort of your DNR, your full code, and that's all we kind of knew. And there's a lot of questions that are in between those two, you know, poles, if you want to say, and figuring out winners, which interventions is, is sort of the challenge, um, because some of them 
It depends. I've taken patients to our unit who wanted two or three more sessions of dialysis, but no more ICU, no more pressors, no more whatever. You know, we'll we'll do mostly comfort measures, but I want to continue dialysis for a few more sessions and spend time with my grandkids. Is that a comfort measure? Probably. Um, they didn't want to stop TPN, IV antibiotics, because maybe it'll improve their mental status. Maybe IV fluids, same. Blood transfusions for sure. So I think, um, and in fact, there was a somebody was doing a study in heme and sort of emailed me and said, "Are blood transfusions considered life prolonging therapy or quality of life based therapy?" And I said, "I think you could make a decent argument for both." Um, so I think there are a lot of interventions that we do in medicine that are both, and that means sometimes I'll see teams get frustrated with patients and families, and they're like, "Well." It could be hospice if we could just get rid of the blood transfusions, like calm down. <laughs> Remember, this is all artificial, you know, kind of nonsense we've made here because we made this determination because, you know, hospice is a bit of an insurance product that it doesn't get paid for in hospice. Is it gonna harm the patient? It doesn't appear to be. Is it improving their quality of life? Patient says it is. Is it unreasonable for them to say they want to continue it? No, no, it's just, it doesn't fit in your box. And I know you're frustrated, but that's not, I mean, to the patient, that's all systems errors. That's not, that's not because it doesn't make sense for their care plan. Uh, we run into the same issue with hospice for patients who are on expensive therapies like IV prostaglandins for pulmonary hypertension. They do help with quality of life. They're also life prolonging. They cost 10 to $20,000 a month. Hospice can't pay for it. These are, and you know, these are, this is a little more practical issues than ethical issues, but I think they turn into ethical issues because then we have discord between patients, families, and teams. That is all structure related. It's all because our structure of care doesn't work when we need it to all of the time. And not necessarily because patients and families realistically are asking for anything that's unreasonable, right? It's interesting that life prolonging and comfort measures don't always have a clear distinction. I imagine that adds a whole other layer of complexity to an already complex situation. Another great point you bring up is the difference between medical ethics standards and what a patient and their family actually expects of medical ethics. Considering this is such a complex field, do you see an appropriate amount of research and funding directed at palliative care? Do you see any ethical challenges in distributing investment to curative therapies versus end-of-life comfort care? Research in our field is a challenge um, and is a great testament to our program um, program chair who, who actually manages to do sort of large scale NIH level research on, on palliative topics because it's harder to structure those outcomes, right? So if you think about that randomized controlled study, that's sort of the, um, uh, the holy grail for outcomes, doing that in palliative patients is a challenge. Um, I will tell you, one of our studies currently is a, an inpatient delirium study on patients who are end of life. And honestly, the, the lead researcher at MD Anderson should get an award for coming up with how to have done it because he convinced the NIH that there was enough structure that we could depend on the outcomes but left enough flexibility because it's end of life. And I actually have had the opportunity to talk to some of the families, because remember, this has to be a family consent type of thing, right? If you're delirious at end of life, the patient is not consenting. It is incredibly challenging to have those conversations. If you think of all the layers of things that are going on, so this family, their loved one is dying. 
um, their loved one has symptoms, right? They're agitated. We're not talking to them about this study if they're not having some sort of symptom burden. And on top of it, we're going through all the usual steps that you would do to consent of consent a patient or a family member for um, for a research study, which is rather involved. It is incredibly challenging. Um, honestly, before we started it, I would have sworn on a stack of Bibles that it wasn't even possible. Uh, but I was wrong. It is. You have to be very careful. You have to be very supportive. You have to have a research team who understands that this is very different than other research studies that they might be doing in different patient populations. But it is possible. And I have, you know, it's interesting, a couple of the families um, sort of relate to me that, you know, part of the reason we're here is because we wanted, we, you know, my loved one wanted to participate in things that were going to lead to better outcomes for other people in addition to themselves. And the fact that we get to do that, even though he's not in a place where, you know, he can cooperate anymore, what have you, but it will help other patients who are in similar circumstances is meaningful, which is awesome. But it is, it's a lot trickier. You have to be really careful. You have to be really dedicated to doing it in in a supportive manner, but you have to you have to follow all of the ethical practices that we apply to research, right? You don't you're not going to skip any because they're end of life. So you have to be you have to be ready for sort of those challenges and to spend more time on it and and to sort of have a team of people who are committed to doing it the right way when the right way is going to take a whole lot of time and support. It seems like you're doing an equal amount of convincing of both the healthcare community and patients themselves to participate in palliative and hospice-based research, but it does sound notably harder to execute research studies in these fields. Though it doesn't seem to be a result of active suppression of research, perhaps the intricacies that we just discussed, along with the lack of advocates who in other medical fields are typically affected patients or their families who are passionate enough to stay involved in the community, that may explain that lack of imbalance of data and funding. Perhaps it would be a whole other ethical uh, topic discussing medical fields that find themselves in similar circumstances. I guess I, I kind of have one, Victoria, kind of going with your with the thing you're talking about. Dr. Norieka, you know, one thing I kind of learned throughout this interview with you is that it seems that the, the decision-making process is very involved with the family. And so I was wondering if you could talk to us, to us about kind of how you walk family members through decision-making, particularly maybe, for example, if uh, a certain family member wanted to withhold information from the patient that, you know, they thought would be harmful and like their heart's in a good place, but you got to respect patient autonomy. Just wondering if you had any experience with that, or maybe you could kind of talk to us how you how you think about that. That is a great question. Um, and remember, the answer to that is, so when we say ethics, remember, we're talking about ethics in the United States and, and law in the United States, because it's not the same in other countries, um, which is not to say that we're right and other people are wrong. It's just different, right? Um, other, other cultures in other countries, from my understanding and listening to patients and families explain these things to me, is that it can be very countercultural in other countries to tell someone that they are dying and to not just discuss that with their family and have their family take care of them. Um, you know, I have also had folks um, kind of, you know, I, I think in the United States, it can be somewhat of a... Um, somewhat of a challenge at times for families to take care of their loved ones, to provide that sort of 24 seven physical care. 
But in other areas in the world, it's almost an offense to ask a family if they're going to take care of their loved one, because that that sort of cultural element is, of course I am. What are you saying about me? So realize that these things are, you know, my answer is based on the United States, which for whatever you want to say about culture here in the U.S., um, we have, you know, our own set of practices and norms, and they're very much dependent on an individual, right? That individual has that that right and the ability unless they're deemed to be without capacity to, to exercise that right. Um, so I think in those instances, and sometimes these conversations get to be really long because depending on, again, how, how families think through things, they can be incredibly distressed by the idea of having that conversation with the patient. But at the end of the day, um, in the United States, that patient gets to make the determination whether or not they get the information. And they're allowed to completely defer. Um, I've only had two patients in my entire practice do it. I've had lots of families approach me and say, don't tell them. Um, but anytime I ask the patient, would you wanna know, or do you want your family to get the information? They say, oh no, I wanna know and I want to decide. It's okay if, if they help me, but I want to know. And in the two instances where the patient said, okay, you can just talk to my family, I will tell you it's a bit of a challenge. If that patient is aware of things and has capacity, now things are happening to them and they don't, they don't know what their diagnosis is. They don't know what the decisions have been made about the balance of, of you know, benefit versus burden, but they're going down for a procedure or they had lab work done and they don't know what the results are or new medications are getting hung and they have no idea why. Um, I will tell you both of the patients wound up changing their mind after a while because it, it's just, it's hard really, I think, to, to be in an autonomous society like we have and to be like lying there without any idea of what's happening to you, but having things continuously happen to you that were based upon discussion with your family members. So that's, that's sort of what I've seen. Um, but the ethical and legal answer in this country is that if the patient has capacity, they get to make that determination and they can, they can determine to defer. Um, one point I'll mention here, this is not ethical, but this is the legal answer, and it seems to be misinterpreted often, so just as a point of learning, legal decision makers can also defer. So if you go by the Virginia legal next of kin chain, and by the way, that's different in every state, so whenever you go to practice somewhere else, you have to learn what it is. But if you're in Virginia, let's say the patient's father says, I don't want to be the decision maker. I would be, but I don't want to be. Um, there's there's this sort of magical thinking sometimes that happens whereby the team allows the father to pick any any individual to be the decision maker. That's not how the law works. It goes to whoever is next on that legal next of kin chain. So if that patient you know has siblings, that the father can't say I want the cousin because the cousin is the closest you know um, to my daughter to make the decisions. That's not how it works. It's great that you brought up the fact that we're all having a discussion with a specific cultural lens in mind, and that is definitely highlighted by the fact that you know so few patients that fully defer medical information to their families. It also seems like the topic of medical or legal ethics again comes in a conflict with the patient's or their family's definition of it. It's quite interesting to me that medical ethics has statewide differences, and that is a testament to how unique uh, ethics principles are with the separation of a few hundred miles, let alone across continents. We were hoping that we could wrap this discussion up with some ethically memorable or challenging experiences you had in your career and uh, walk us through the scenario and how you handled it. When you have a system where the sole trigger for consultation is the provider sort of determining 
that they think a palliative care consult would be reasonable, often your palliative care consults tend to be interesting, right? Because if things were going in a straightforward manner, they don't call me. They call me, however, when there's problems, right? Um, and then we have to work out the problems. So many of the consults we do here, there tends to be some sort of issue, even if it's not, even if it's, you know, sort of bread and butter ethical, because it's really just sort of patient and family strife and dealing with um, transitions of care and, and how you make those decisions. I think though, in general, the one topic, aside from sort of identifying a particular patient, um, it's interesting because we often get called about resuscitation status. That seems to be the thing that sort of everybody is like focused on. Like if we can make them DNR, I'm like, but what about the rest of their healthcare, right? That doesn't answer much. <laughs> so fine, we're not going to bring them back to life, but like, what are we doing with the rest of the human? Um, I think the ones, the conversations that tend to get the trickiest are actually about nutrition. Those are the ones that if I get consulted on nutrition, I say, mm. <laughs> um, because that's, that's the one where sometimes the ethics is a bit fuzzy. There isn't exactly sometimes the right answer, right? So we'll say at times, okay, if a patient has advanced dementia, we know that there's been multiple publications in a Cochrane review to suggest that those patients are not benefited by um, artificial nutrition. But there's a lot of circumstances where does the, well, they have dementia, but is it advanced? They're kind of walking around. Um, they have dysphagia for some other reason. They had a stroke. We don't know what their prognosis is. That's usually where we kind of wind up with some degree of angst. Um, and sometimes the primary team has a very definitive idea of what they think the right answer is. And if the family is in a different place on it, we have, we have you know, challenges. Um, and those are the conversations that can sometimes tend to get heated because, you know, I think one of the things we have to remember is that for many in the U.S., you know, families kind of equate food feeding that sort of um, that sort of spectrum with how they care for their loved one. And when you say we're not going to, you know, we're not going to do that anymore, we're not going to feed them, um, and we don't think artificial nutrition is sort of that you know, we think there's going to be more burden than benefit, um, that sort of triggers some families to have a very kind of strong emotional response to that. Um, and at times it gets tricky because, you know, when you're having those conversations, I'll, I'll watch teams kind of engage in, here's the science to this, but truthfully, the family is in an emotional space, right? And science doesn't work for that, that you just have to sort of process how they're dealing with this emotionally, which is often things about loss of control and the relationship they had with that person and um, the, you know, the distress over, we didn't really talk about what we would want to do here and I'm not really sure and now I'm conflicted, but this seems like a big deal. Um, so I will say those conversations, I, I tend to be rather careful with. Um, and those are good conversations to allow families to do a lot of talking before you speak at all. Um, because I think really getting to understand where patients and families are coming from. Remember, when we talk about doing family meetings, we often encourage everyone to start with a lot of open-ended questions because that gives you a much better sense of where the folks are that you're talking to. And it's not, it's not a surprise for me if, you know, well-meaning team tells me family's over here and I start asking open-ended questions and I find out they're over here. Well, then I need to go over here. Wherever the team said we, we were, we might not be, but I need to start wherever the family is because otherwise we're gonna have a war and nobody's gonna be benefited by that, right? So if, 
if I, if I start asking questions and find out that the patient in question is the cook of the family and took care of everyone, including the entire neighborhood's kids when various family members had problems and fed them all and was the greatest cook on earth and, and loved to eat and all of these things, we all know that a peg tube is not the same as all of that, but that's not how it's perceived by many family members. Um, and, you know, we're, we're limited by the fact that many patients don't have any sort of advanced directives. We didn't have conversations. So the family is also struggling with that added burden of, I'm really not sure what they would have wanted. And I don't want to say the wrong answer, which is hard, right? Kind of going along on those same lines. What about when patients, you know, refuse to have the peg tube or refuse TPN and, can you speak a little bit more about, you know, the Death with Dignity Acts and um, how you have assisted patients in dying and aided them in dying? And I don't like to use the term physician-assisted suicide. I know it's very political and it has a lot of connotations, but I'm sure you've encountered those experiences as well. Can you speak a little bit more towards patients that want to die with dignity and how you help them? Yeah, so that is both an, equal, an ethical and a legal question, right? Um, and the, the term that's often used now in legal contexts is um, medical aid in dying um, or MAID. And um, obviously it's not legal in Virginia, so I don't have any firsthand experience with it. Um, I think one of the things that surprises most of the colleagues I work with in the hospital is that I actually don't do that for a living. All of the patients who die with us die because of their underlying condition. Um, and I can swear to you after practicing for over a decade in this specialty that none of the medicines that I use change the patient's overall outcome or their time course very much. It used to be we had to sort of use this, um, you know, this doctrine of double effect to kind of explain ethically why we would use medications that, you know, normally we would be fearful that they would shorten a patient's time. Um, but it turns out that they did do studies in this on patients and in patients who are really close to end of life. So expected prognosis of hours to days, right? There's, there's separate camps of people who do things further upstream and that's a whole other discussion. But if you're, if you're looking at patients who are within hours to days at end of life, even if you use anesthetic level medications for symptom management because they're in status epilepticus and they're still on Versed, it does not change the time they have dramatically, right? There's no, there's no significant difference. So we don't, we don't have to sort of consider that. Um, so that's, that's all standard medical practice. And that is, is what we do here. Um, last count, I think there were eight or nine states in the United States that have legalized made to some degree, and they all have different policies. So again, legal and ethical answer, right? Every state has a different approach to this. Um, and they, there's a list of things that have to be done. There's a structure for it. Um, the patient has a number of responsibilities. They have to see a number of physicians. They have to have a psychological evaluation. There has to be a time separation. Um, their family has to be, like there's an entire list of things that you have to do before you're given this prescription, um, often for something in the um, pentobarbital kind of range um, that, you know, the patient can have on hand. And that's where the assisted part comes from, right? Because you're writing a prescription that the patient is going to use on their own. Um, there are some countries in the world that have obviously have legalized euthanasia. That's a totally different scheme. That's an, you know, that, that physician is then an active participant. Um, I think, you know, for me personally, because this is really ethically murky territory, <laughs> 
Um, and a lot of people have strong opinions on it. And I will tell you, I understand both arguments. I totally understand both. I have seen patients who were really suffering at end of life and it was very hard to figure out how to make their suffering manageable, really, really hard. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen patients with ALS and, and other degenerative disorders who are high functioning middle-aged people who are not interested in degrading to the point where their you know, spouse is taking care of their young children and them at the same time. And that's, that's what they have to sort of look forward to. All of those are, are incredibly difficult things to walk patients and families through. Um, that being said, I'm super glad I, I work in a state where it's not an option. Um, I, I cannot, I cannot even imagine um, being the physician in that scenario with a patient and family. Um, one thing I will say in this state, because this has actually been brought before Virginia legislature twice now in the last few years. Um, one thing I will say that, and that we have an open comment, we have told the state this as well, is if you want to do this, okay. However, most of the state doesn't have access to palliative care right now. That's nonsense. <laughs> so whether or not you believe that that MAID should be available for patients and families, one of the things that is a central tenant to exploring anything like that is those patients and families need the support of palliative before we get to any place where, because I will tell you, I have had patients ask me before um, for things like that, and then after we kind of work with them, interdisciplinary team, lots of support for their family, manage symptoms, whatever, they're like, I'm so glad that nobody could do that here because I totally changed my mind. Well, that's a big deal, right? Like nobody wants that. Nobody should want that. So until we have palliative care everywhere in Virginia, and we're really far from it now, um, I feel like things like that are, are a bit of a challenge because when you have patients and families who are suffering and they feel like there's no other option, they will do things like that. And that's almost a crime. No, that's, a, that's actually a really good point that you bring up. And I think that having palliative services available, especially earlier on, like as an outpatient setting, like you mentioned, is, is crucial before patients go to such drastic measures before fully understanding what else is available to them. Um, and I think the um, How to Die in Oregon is a really good documentary that kind of talks about these Death with Dignity Acts. Um, we'll link it below as well so that people can check that out if they're interested in learning a little bit more about the Death with Dignity Acts and seeing that documentary. This reminds me of the blueprint for informed consent where all options must be discussed before a choice is made to truly have an ethical approach. These are all such great points. I also have respect for your candid comment of how difficult it must be for a doctor to navigate in those states and countries that have a larger pool of options surrounding death. It's good to know that even someone who has so much experience in the field struggles with the incorporation of this into ubiquitous practice. Dr. Narika, I just wanted to ask quickly, perhaps this is a good closing question. I wanted to ask, um, what advice do you give for families and other providers who are looking to foster personal resilience when they're watching patients or loved ones go through um, a palliative care process? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, one of the things, and essentially my whole life is communication, right? And on every level, in every direction in general, right? Because sometimes I get consulted and everybody's just mad, right? Um, and it's hard. It's, 
whatever, whatever baseline issues the patient and family had are generally magnified in these circumstances and whatever challenges patient and family would have had with team are also magnified. So it, it tends to get messy quickly. And I think, you know, sort of the basic components of, of communication are, you know, to, to make sure we're actively listening to give the patient and family space to sort of express what they're feeling, um, to make sure that they have support, right? You're not just talking, you shouldn't just be talking to a doctor. Doctors are great, super great, right? I'm a doctor. Um, but a lot of the work that gets done in palliative is done by chaplains and nurses and social workers and psychologists, and I could go on, right? Um, because that is actually, that's the support that the patient and family needs to, to get from wherever they are to where kind of, you know, their disease courses. Um, and I think sort of allowing for flexibility is hard at times for teams. I sort of referenced that earlier, but allowing some flexibility, being in a space where you can accept what the patient and family's answer is, and then just sort of keep providing support and keeping that conversation going over time. Um, sometimes it is hard, we're all human, not to sort of have judgments about what those things are. And I'm human too. And there are times where I was like, mm, Danny, you could have done better with that. <laughs> um, and it is what it is. And, and I try to take that, those pieces of feedback and do better the next time. But I think a lot of what I do boils down to communication. Um, and the more open we can all be to sort of um, developing those skills over time, the better it is for patients and families who are in the spectrum. Um, and then I would say the other piece is sort of expectations. Um, one of the things that I tend to tell health staff who rotate with us is, you know, you're not going to remember what I told you about opioid conversions or family meeting structures or some of these other things, advanced directives, you know, potentially years later. But if you can remember to expect anything from anyone at any time, you will do better, right? And because that's an expectation thing. Um, I will have teams... <laughs> we had a conversation, we have a plan, and then the family comes in the next day, and, you know, overnight, they've gotten stirred up about something, um, and they've come in, and they're, you know, what, what happened to the tube feeds again? I don't really understand that, and then the team just, like, totally decompensates. We talked about this yesterday. We had a plan. Why are you doing this? Well, they're doing it because they're human, and that's what humans do, um, so, you know, you just sit down, and you say, okay, I hear you. That's cool. Let's talk about it, and then sometimes five or ten minutes later, you're done. The family just needed to to just sort of do the thing again. Um, but I think it's sometimes easy. Um, and I think one of the things that the pandemic has really done is to sort of keep everyone in a semi-escalated state all of the time. And then it just sort of, so I think if we can kind of keep the expectations at a place of patients and families are human and they're gonna go back and forth. And it doesn't mean that we did anything wrong. And it doesn't mean that our care plan isn't gonna work. And it doesn't mean everything's gonna fall apart. It just means that that's what humans do. And we're just gonna sit and we'll figure it out together. Okay, Dr. Narika, thank you so much for joining us. This was such a great introduction to palliative and hospice care and a fantastic discussion on the ethical principles and challenges in these medical care fields. Thank you guys so much. It was a, it was a joy. Please uh, let me know if anything else comes up and uh, hopefully I'll see you all around. This has been another episode of First Do No Harm. If you liked this episode, feel free to check out some of our other content on our website www.firstdonoharmpodcast.com or stream episodes anywhere where you get your podcasts.